You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Transplantation, produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, covering current issues and practices in transplant medicine. IU Health, discover the strength of a leading national transplant center. Your host is Dr. Aaron Carroll, Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Director of the Center for Health Policy and Professionalism Research, and Associate Director of Children's Health Services Research at Indiana University School of Medicine. Patients with advanced heart failure or end-stage heart disease who no longer respond to medical management can seek quality of life improvement in the form of ventricular assist devices, or VADs, or sometimes heart transplantation. When should VADs be considered destination therapy rather than a bridge to transplant, and when might transplant be the better option? Our guest is Dr. Thomas Wozniak, Surgical Director of the Indiana University Health Thoracic Transplant Program. Dr. Wozniak, welcome. Thank you. How common are advanced heart failure and end-stage heart disease in the United States? Currently, about 3 to 5 million people per year suffer from heart failure in the United States. Of that 3 to 5 million, about one-third of that population suffers from what we call class 3 or 4 heart failure, which are the people that primarily qualify for this type of therapy. What makes someone class 3 or 4 versus class 1 or 2? That's a definition based on their ability to tolerate different types of activity. A class 1 patient is a person who's just very little limitation in their activity because of their heart failure, whereas a class 4 patient is somebody who is basically debilitated and, and bedbound. What are the treatment options for patients with advanced heart failure? When we get into this class 3 and class 4, they've usually exhausted most of the initial medical options, which are things such as routine blood pressure medications, afterload reduction, diet and exercise, salt restriction, and as they get into class 3 and class 4, they require more hospitalizations, which typically requires more invasive things such as intravenous medications, inotropic support, fluid removal mechanically, and then as they progress on further, we consider them for more advanced failures such as ventricular assist device therapy and cardiac transplantation. And can you tell us what a ventricular assist device is? A ventricular assist device is a device that effectively takes over the pumping function of the heart. The heart effectively has two pumping chambers, the right and the left side. When we refer to ventricular assist device therapy, we are primarily referring to left-sided ventricular assist device support, although it can be for both sides. So when a heart fails, it loses its ability to pump heart to, to pump the blood normally around the body. And as it loses that efficiency, you have to replace that somehow. And so most of the pumps that are currently manufactured are put in series with the left ventricle to basically divert the blood from the left ventricle into the pump and then into the patient's circulation, thereby avoiding the whole need for the heart to work too hard. Now, could you walk us through just some of the physics of that? I mean, how does it actually work? Does it sit inside the heart or outside the heart? How is it connected up? There are a variety of ways to do this. Most of the pumps that are currently used now are what we call intracorporeal, meaning they're within the body, but they're external to the heart. We do not remove the heart to put these devices in. As I mentioned earlier, they're, they're connected in series directly into the left ventricle. The only thing that typically you can see that shows that the person has a device nowadays is the drive line that comes out. Most of these are electrically driven now, although some of them are still pneumatically driven or air driven. But the drive line is really the only external thing that one can identify that shows the person has an assist device. There are a few devices that are placed directly inside of the heart, but those are not what are primarily being used right now. And how do you determine what the best timing is for a VAD implantation in an individual patient? It depends on the clinical scenario. In the old days, the ventricular assist device therapy was primarily reserved as salvage therapy. So most of the patients that we saw 
with regard to ventricular assist device were patients who were in severe extremis and basically close to death. And as a result of that, the initial outcomes weren't very good with ventricular assist device therapy. As the devices have become less complex, more reliable, smaller, and more easily to implant, we've been able to get more aggressive with recommending these things earlier to people. So ideally, you'd like to implant somebody when they are effectively as optimally medically managed as they can be such that they can tolerate the rigors of the operation and any potential complications that may arise. So how do you determine who's a candidate for a VAD versus who should be a candidate for a transplant? We start with patients that we think might need cardiac transplantation. Historically, that's been the referral base as patients referred over for transplantation. And when we look at a patient nowadays for cardiac transplantation, we essentially look at them at the same time for ventricular assist device support because with the current ranking system for transplantation, it's very difficult anymore to be transplanted without support. So we look at them both at the same time. Now, the other population of people who are ventricular assist device candidates are the destination therapy population. And those people might be referred directly for implantation for a device because they're not felt to be otherwise a suitable cardiac transplant candidate. And what would make someone not a suitable cardiac transplant patient? Essentially, it's any sort of comorbidity that would lead to a poor outcome. We don't use a strict age criteria within our program, but certainly advanced age comes along with it. You know, comorbidities that make recovery from any sort of operation more difficult. Other things such as other end-stage organ failure, kidney failure, liver failure, bad diabetes, things that are going to be a challenge postoperatively would eliminate somebody from transplantation candidacy. And then some things such as malignancies, cancer, et cetera, those patients are not candidates. So are those the real reasons you would consider someone to have a VAD as a bridge to transplant versus a destination therapy? When we look at a person for bridge to transplantation, we're effectively using the device to bridge that person over until they can be transplanted. Now, the current wait for a transplant in Indiana is about six months to one year. And a lot of these patients are so sick that they may deteriorate more rapidly without some sort of support. So the device effectively is there to prevent them from declining more and, in fact, to get them in better condition for their transplant. And how does that wait time in Indiana compare to the wait times nationally? That varies all around the country. You know, we're in an area where it's centrally located and in the center of Indiana, Indianapolis, where it's mostly rural around. You look at a place like New York City where you have multiple programs even within one city, the wait list times are even shorter. And then if you look at other places, they're longer. I, I think we're right around the national average. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Carroll. Our guest today is Dr. Thomas Wozniak, Surgical Director of the Indiana University Health Thoracic Transplant Program. We're discussing advanced heart care, timing considerations for VAD, and for heart transplant. So, Dr. Wozniak, how has patient quality of life improved with a VAD, and is that better or worse than if you have a transplant? The whole intention of placing a VAD is to improve their quality of life. Remember, these people are generally class 3 or class 4 heart failure patients, meaning they're severely limited in their daily activities. Many of them can just barely get out of the house, walk to the car, and then go somewhere and sit. So what you want to do is reestablish some sort of quality of life where they can get out and do everything that they used to do prior to becoming a heart failure patient. The bottom line is we intend to improve their quality of life. How are patients referred to a transplant center for a VAD, and does that differ than how they might be referred for a transplant? It's essentially the same process. Again, most of the patients that come to our transplant program are referred because they have advanced heart failure, and they've basically uh, exhausted all of the other medical options. So once they've reached us, we look at them with both things in mind, either transplantation or ventricular assist device therapy or both. 
Are the transplant programs each based within a state? Are there 50 different transplant programs or is there one large national program? There are multiple programs. There are multiple programs even within one city, if not even in one state. Now, there are some states without a program, but we all utilize the same organ sharing network, which is called UNOS, the United Network for Organ Sharing, and that's what distributes those organs. So even though there are multiple programs, we all utilize the same wait list. How is heart transplant waiting list, how is it prioritized? In other words, how do they decide who gets what organ and when? Currently, there are three listing statuses for transplantation. There's the 1A, 1B, and status 2. There's also a fourth one called status 7, which is essentially a, a temporary hold. So if you have a person who's been previously listed and then has an illness for which they shouldn't be transplanted acutely, you would put them on temporary hold. The 1A and the 1B designation refers to people who are more sick, and these are essentially people who either have a ventricular assist device in place or who are on inotropic support or who are in the hospital with continuous hemodynamic monitoring. A status 2 patient would be somebody who's at home waiting for a transplant that doesn't have any of those other things I've just mentioned. And essentially, it's that population now is the one that's being transplanted less and less frequently. The way the ventricular assist devices work is that if a person has a device in there, automatically designated a status 1B. They have 30 days that can be assigned to them to become a status 1A, but once they've utilized that 30 days of 1A time, if they haven't been transplanted, they have to go back to a status 1B. Now, if they develop a device-related complication, such as an ongoing infection, a driveline infection, thromboembolic events from the device, they can then be upgraded to a, a chronic status 1A. In theory, if you go back to the original prioritization that was used in the old days, a status 1 was somebody who was felt to be, if they weren't transplanted within seven days, they would die. And that's still sort of the spirit of the 1A listing, but it's changed a lot with the ventricular assist device therapy now. How long can a patient expect then to live with a VAD? And would they live well, or would it be something that would deteriorate pretty quickly over time? The goal, again, is to have these people back to a normal standard of, you know, quality of life. So most of these people, you know, everybody we implant, our goal is to send them home, let them travel, do everything that they haven't been able to do for years. The average time for bridge to transplantation is usually about 6 to 12 months on the device. As I mentioned earlier, that's the usual wait list time right now for a cardiac transplant. We're seeing more and more patients now with destination therapy support that are 5 and 6 years out with their devices in place, and primarily what you're seeing in the long run if people begin to deteriorate after a device has been put in, it can be one of several things. It can be device-related complications, which are becoming less frequent now with the better devices, or progression of their right heart failure. If a person develops progressive right heart failure, even with a left ventricular assist device in place, that device then loses its effectiveness, or they may expire from other comorbidities, stroke, diabetic complications, etc. Dr. Wozniak, can you tell us about some of the VAD or transplant clinical trials that you've been involved in? We're currently involved in three ongoing trials right now. Two of them are related to the hardware left ventricular assist device. One is an arm of the trial called the bridge to transplant trial, and the second is the destination therapy trial. The bridge to transplant trial is looking at this device as a suitable device for bridge to transplantation. The destination therapy trial is looking at it as being a suitable device for destination therapy. The destination therapy device is a randomized trial where they're comparing that to another already FDA-approved left ventricular assist device. So those are the two hardware trials that we're currently active in and that are ongoing. The third trial is called the Voyager trial, and that's an outpatient trial utilizing the Abiumet AB5000 device. Recently, we've been involved in the HeartMate 2 trials for both bridge to transplantation and destination therapy. Those were probably the two most recent active trials that were approved within the last two to three years. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about the Abiomed device and how that works? Abiomed makes a variety of different devices, but the difference between Abiomed and some of the other devices on the market is their philosophy. They're more of a recovery-type device. When we talk about ventricular assist device therapy and you're looking at what the indication is, for the most part it is bridge to transplantation or destination therapy. But there are some people who can sustain myocardial injury that they can recover from. But until they can recover, they need some sort of support. So Abiumed has done a very good job of creating devices that are shorter-term devices, more easily implanted devices, and more easily explanted devices that can be placed in people who you think might sustain recovery and take their device out and leave them with their native heart. Similarly, it can also be placed in other hospitals around the state and utilized to support people until they can be transferred to a more tertiary referral-type center. And then if they need to be either recovered or switched out to a longer-term device, we can do that as well. Now, you say easier to implant. I'm envisioning in my head an open chest, open heart surgery. Is that still how all of these devices are implanted? Or when you say easier, is it truly much easier? The majority of these devices are still placed through open heart, or open sternal incisions. When I say ease of implant, it refers sometimes to the suturing techniques, the ability to do these without the use of cardiopulmonary bypass, which can be an advantage. But there are some devices that are actually percutaneous as well, can be placed via the femoral artery, and those can be very good temporizing devices until you can get a longer-term support device in. What VAD and transplant developments do you see in the near future? Where do you think we're moving? Where do you think the most impressive and important things are going to come? I think the primary goal is to ultimately replace transplantation with ventricular assist device therapy. I don't think it will ever completely replace that, but that's certainly where the trend is heading, is these devices are becoming more reliable, prone to less complications, having better longevity, and they can be placed electively. That's a much better option for people who are, you know, waiting for an organ, which can take sometimes up to a year to, to receive. So... There are some impediments to that. Of course, these are mechanical devices, and with any mechanical device, there's always going to be some sort of problem with longevity. I think the biggest thing right now that we'd like to fix in the future that could ultimately make this the perfect solution would be to eliminate the power source and have this a completely, totally implantable device. There have been some experimental devices out there, but it's very difficult to do that because you have to have transcutaneous battery power and things like that. So they've not yet figured that out but we're getting closer every day. And when you say we're getting closer, do you have a belief or an estimate of how long you think it'll take? Well, I'm, I just always kind of wonder if it's going to be in place by the time I retire. So <laughs> okay. uh, we'll wait and see, I think. I mean, I've been in practice for 15 years, and just what I've seen in my time in practice compared to what was going on during training, it's been a dramatic improvement. We've been talking with Dr. Thomas Wozniak about advanced heart care and timing considerations for VAD and transplant. Dr. Wozniak, thank you for being our guest. My pleasure. You have been listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This program is produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, the strength of a leading national transplant center. Discover the strength at iuhealth.org forward slash transplant. To find more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.